I'm sure it's a violation of some liturgical rule book, but I'm going to continue the Ethics of Advent series, even though we're now in Christmas. And I want to start again with Bonhoeffer's sermons in London on 1 Corinthians 13. As I mentioned last time, he preached a series of these sermons. I looked at the first two. I want to look now at the the one he preached on Reformation Sunday, the last one where he finished the chapter, preaching through the chapter, talking specifically about 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. This was preached in London on Reformation Sunday, November 4th, 1934. This series of sermons was very intentionally planned so that this text would fall on Reformation Sunday. With this, we wish to say that the church that has spoken, as probably no other has done, about the power and the salvation and the victory of faith in Jesus Christ alone, the church that is so great in its faith, must be even greater in its love. I want to stop to say this is is one of the places where I have some quarrel with Bonhoeffer, his insistence on talking about Protestantism as a church and playing up, I think, the difference between the Protestant church and the Catholic church. I I think that's a dead end, but it's not entirely fruitless or, or worthless because it does kind of remind us to take account of our own communities. Theology cannot be done without deep rootedness in a particular tradition. Preaching cannot be done, more importantly, without rootedness in a particular tradition. Praying cannot be done, most importantly of all. So Bonhoeffer is right to be deeply rooted in that tradition, I think, and right to speak of it. I, I, I think it's a mistake, though, to talk about it as a church. I'll use the word community at times. I'll I'll use the word tradition often. I think that that difference matters. But his insistence in this sermon is that Protestants take pride in being people of faith, but not necessarily in people of love. And so, as a Pentecostal, let me say we take pride in being people of faith, but for an entirely different reason. Like we take pride not in justification by faith or being justified by faith alone, but in the works of God that come about through our belief, right? The signs that follow those of us who believe. And and so I think the 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 lines are pretty easy to draw, right? We need to hear what Bonhoeffer is saying. We being Pentecostals need to hear what he is saying just w- with with the same edge. Let it let it cut to the quick for us too. He goes on to say in the last paragraph of of the last sentence of the opening paragraph of the sermon, a church may have great faith, the most orthodox beliefs, the firmest loyalty to its confession. But if it is not even more, a church of pure and all-embracing love, it is good for nothing. Pure and all-embracing love, it is good for nothing. And I I think we can easily say it's not only good for nothing, it's bad, right? And is, is bringing about anything but good. In the process, in the next paragraph, he, he continues this the sense of the worthlessness of faith without love. It does nobody any good 
to protest that he or she is a believer in Christ without first going and being reconciled with his or her brother or sister, even if this means someone who is a non-believer of another race, marginalized, or outcast. And this, this again, is a reference to the direct words of Jesus, right? To Jesus saying, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. And Boniface says that that's reconciliation with your brother or sister across all of these lines, racial lines, social lines, ethnic class lines, so economic lines, so on. The church that calls a people to belief in Christ, and he uses bulk there, the church that calls a people to belief in Christ must itself be, in the midst of that people, the burning fire of love, the nucleus of reconciliation, the source of the fire in which all hatred is smothered and proud, hateful people are transformed into loving people. So this, this is his ecclesiology, right? So the church bears witness to Jesus by loving as Jesus loves. And it is love that tells the truth finally. That love, as you'll say at the end of the sermon, love does not stand without faith and hope. But love is what matters in the end. Skipping down a bit. The believer sees error. He's talking about here the difference. That love makes it possible for faith to act. Right, The faith that works by love, in the language of Galatians. The believer sees error and believes in truth, sees guilt and believes in forgiveness, sees death and believes in eternal life, or sees nothing and yet believes in the work and the grace of God. And then he quotes, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is made perfect in weakness. And this shows the ways in which for Bonhoeffer, weakness and power are related to the way in which you love. And love is revealed, carried out, accomplished in Jesus, who makes himself weak for us, who enacts his power in his weakness, specifically the weakness of the cross, being tortured, betrayed, tortured, and ultimately killed. He, there's, there's a lot here that I'm skipping over that you should definitely read. So if you can get your hands on the sermon, you, you should read it and read it often and carefully. But he, toward the end of the sermon, returns, and I'll, I'm going to read the last few paragraphs without, without too many interruptions so you can get a feel for what the, the, the way in which he brought this home to his first hearers. And again, I, I think it's, just as relevant today as it was when he spoke it then to those people. What can be greater than to live in faith before God? What can be greater than to live one's life toward God? What is greater is the love that lives in God. Walk before me. He who abides in love abides in God. What is greater than the humility of faith, which never forgets how infinitely far the Creator is from the creature? What is greater than the confidence of hope, which longs for the coming of God, and the moment of seeing God's reality, what is greater is the love that here and now is sure of God's presence and nearness everywhere. What is greater is the love that here and now is sure of God's presence and nearness everywhere, that clings to God's love and knows that his love desires nothing other than our love. What is greater than faith, which hopes for and holds fast to its salvation in Christ and will be justified by him? What is greater than hope, which is prepared at any moment for the blessedness of death, of going home. What is greater is the love that serves. Remember this language of service. 
forgetting everything for the sake of the other, and even gives up, gives up its own salvation in order to bring it to the brethren. For those who lose their love for my sake will find it. Such an astounding line. What is greater is the love that serves, forgetting everything for the sake of the other, and even gives up its own salvation in order to bring it to the brethren. For those who lose their love for my sake will find it. And that's a, a kind of play, obviously, on Jesus' word. Those who lose their life will find it. Faith and hope abide. Let no one think it is possible to have love without faith and without hope. Love without faith would be a stream without a source. That would mean that one could have love without Christ. Through faith alone we are justified before God. Through hope we are prepared for our end, and through love we are made perfect. And he continues this theme of faith and hope being necessary to love, but love being what perfects faith and hope. Perfection's name is love, but the sign of perfect love in this world bears the name cross. That is the way that perfect love must go in this world, must go over and over again. That shows us, first of all, that this world is ripe, even overripe, for its destruction. Only God's indescribable patience can wait for the end time. Second, it shows us that the church in this world remains the church under the sign of the cross. And so this, this is a Lutheran theme, obviously, a Pauline theme. We, we see it everywhere in Bonhoeffer, right? The church stands under the sign of the cross. The church's service must be the service of love, and love must be the love of the crucified one. In particular, the church that wants to become the church of God's visible glory here and now has denied its Lord on the cross. Faith, hope, and love together lead us through the cross to perfection. And then we get the final paragraph of the sermon. When we go out the doors of this church now, we enter into a world that is longing for the things we have spoken of here. Not simply for the words, of course, but for the reality. Humanity, betrayed and disappointed a thousand times over, needs faith. Humanity, wounded and suffering, needs hope. Humanity, fallen into discord and mistrust, needs love. Even if we no longer have any compassion for our own poor souls, which are truly in need of all three, do at least have compassion for your poor fellow human beings. They want to learn from us how to believe again, to hope, to love again. Do not deny them. On this Reformation Sunday, let us hear the call, believe, hope, and above all, love, and you will overcome the world. Amen. So you get at the end of this sermon, again in 1934, Bonhoeffer's insistence that the church is the church as it is going out. The church is the church on mission. The church is the church on the mission of loving others the ways in which God, as God has loved us. And he continued to work those themes and to return to them again and again in life together, which is, as I'm sure you've heard many times, one of those books that every Christian ought to read again and again. Maybe we shouldn't make stipulations about what every Christian ought to do. You'll see. That's a very anti-Bonhoefferian statement to talk about what every Christian should do. But it, it does seem to me to be one of the one of the wisest and gentlest witnesses to the kind of life God calls us to live. In, in Life Together, he has a chapter on community in which he contrasts spiritual community and emotional community and spiritual love and emotional love. 
So let me share a bit of that, and you'll see how the themes that were already present there in the sermons on 1 Corinthians 13 like continue to work as, as he continues to live and grow and develop as a theologian and as a pastor and as a human being. Christian community is not an ideal. This is on page 38 of the Fortress Press edition of the Life Together. Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. So this goes back to a couple of talks previous. We talk about we don't live by principles. We don't live by ideals. We don't live by abstractions or generalizations. We live by what has been accomplished in Jesus and the word about what is accomplished in Jesus. Because Christian community is founded solely on Jesus Christ, it is a spiritual and not a psychic reality. It's a spiritual and not a psychic reality. In this respect, it differs absolutely from all other communities. The scriptures call pneumatic or spiritual what is created only by the Holy Spirit. And here, of course, he has 1 Corinthians in particular in mind who puts Jesus Christ into our hearts as Lord and Savior. The scripture calls psychic or emotional what comes from the, human, from the natural urges, strengths, and abilities of the human soul. Right? So Holy Spirit versus the human spirit, in particular the depths of the human spirit. The basis of all pneumatic or spiritual reality is the clear manifest word of God in Jesus Christ. At the foundation of all psychic or emotional reality, are the dark, impenetrable urges and desires of the human soul. The basis of spirit, and, and I think we should hear dark not as wicked, but as hidden, right? uh, dark as in obscured. The basis of spiritual community is truth. The basis of emotional community is desire. The essence of spiritual community is light, for God is light, and in God there is no darkness at all. And if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The essence of emotional, self-centered community is darkness, for it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. And notice in this passage, Bonhoeffer doesn't quite say this exactly, but in that passage that evil intentions come from the heart. The heart is not simply described as evil. It's simply to say the heart is dark, desperately wicked, right? In, In the language of the King James translation of Jeremiah, who can know it? But What Jesus seems to be saying is not that the human heart is the source of evil or that the human heart is entirely evil, but that there is evil lurking in the darkness of the human heart. It is the deep night that spreads over the sources of all human activity, over even all noble and devout impulses. Spiritual community is the community of those who are called by Christ. Emotional community is the community of pious souls. In other words, this, this, the fundamental difference is a sense of being called by Jesus versus being a, a good person, quote-unquote, or being a person who loves spirituality or loves being spiritual. The bright love of Christian service, agape, lives in the spiritual community. The dark love of pious, impious urges, eros, burns in the self-centered community. In the former, there is ordered Christian service. In the latter, disordered desire for pleasure. In the former, there is humble submission of Christians one to another. In the latter, humble yet haughty subjection of other Christians to one's own desires. So this this is, I think, 
kind of quintessential Bonifer right there. There, there's, there definitely are broad strokes here. And yet there's such a light touch, right? So I, I think about, for whatever reason, what the image that's coming to mind is like Picasso's, so much of what Picasso does, right? There, there are sweeping, suggestive remarks, but they, they have a subtlety that's startling. And that, that's what strikes me here, right? He's talking in such broad terms about spiritual versus emotional community as if these are clearly distinct. And he will say later, they are in fact clearly distinct. And as I'm reading it, and I'm sure as you're hearing it, you're thinking, I'm, well, is it really so distinct? And then he makes this observation. In the former, in, in spiritual community, there is humble submission one to another. In the latter, there is humility, but it's also haughty, humble yet haughty subjection of other Christians to one's own desires. In the spiritual community, the word of God alone ruin, rules. In the emotional, self-centered community, the individual who is equipped with exceptional powers, experience, and magical suggestive abilities rules along with the word. And, and this, I, I think, is that subtlety, that that light touch with Bonifer, he isn't simply saying that there's a person who's taking up too much of the space, right? I mean, so much of the time when we're critical of quote-unquote personality cults or churches that are too concerned about personality, we end up being anti-human, right? We end up depersonalizing those who are called to ministry. But here he's saying what you have to be wary of is are those people who are equipped with exceptional powers, experience, and magical suggestive ability coming to rule with a kind of humility that's ultimately false because it's it's hiding or cloaking the haughty imposition of the leader's own desires onto others. In the one, the spiritual community, God's word alone is binding. In the other, besides the word, human beings bind others to themselves. And this... This is the theme that you're going, you're going to hear again and again as we come to ethics in just a moment. The sense in which ultimately what marks the psychic or the soulish or the emotional community is it does violence to other people. It, it puts pressure on them. It constrains them. It binds them. And so you can see here he's insisting on that. God's word alone can bind or we can bind others with our powers in one way or another. In the one, all power, honor, and rule are surrendered to the Holy Spirit. In the other, power and personal spheres of influence are sought and cultivated. So far as these are devout people, they certainly seek this power with the intention, remember this language of intention, they certainly seek this power with the intention of serving the highest and the best. But in reality, they end up dethroning the Holy Spirit and banishing it to the realm of unreal remoteness. Only what is self-centered remains real here. Thus, in the spiritual community, the spirit rules. In the emotional community, psychological techniques and methods. In the former, unsophisticated, non-psychological, unmethodical, helping love is offered one to another. In the latter, psychological analysis and design in the former, service to one another is simple and humble. In the latter, 
It is to strangers treated in a searching, calculating fashion. <sighs> yeah, penetrating analysis. And if, if anything, it's exaggeratedly true of many of our churches. Perhaps the contrast between spiritual and emotional self-centered reality can be made most clear in the following observation. Within the spiritual community, there is never, in any way whatsoever, an immediate relationship one to another, of one to another, in, in immediate is in quotes. However, in the self-centered community, there exists a profound emotional, elemental desire for community, for immediate contact with other human souls, just as in the flesh there is a yearning for immediate union with other flesh. In other words, there's a lust for Christian, quote-unquote, there's a lust for church, there's a lust for community that is analogous to the lust that we we associate with you know with teens and with those who haven't learned to, to curtail their desires and, and Bonifer recognizes rightly that this lust the lust for community is the truly destructive one there's a passion for belonging having a place and it, it can devour us. It, it can eat us and others alive. This desire of the human soul seeks the complete intimate fusion of I and you, I and thou. Whether this occurs in the union of love or what from this self-centered perspective is after all the same thing, in forcing the other into one's own sphere of power and influence. Here is where, where self-centered, strong persons enjoy life to the full securing for themselves the admiration, the love, or the fear of the weak. Here, human bonds, suggestive influences, and dependencies are everything. Moreover, everything that is originally and solely characteristic of the community mediated through Christ reappears in the non-mediated community of souls in a distorted form. And here he's saying that there is a certain kind of power in this false community. Well, it's false in the sense that it's not what is intended for us, but it is it is very real in that it can be achieved. In fact, it is as you're as you're about to hear, it is in, in many ways the only thing that can be achieved. And it not only can be done, but it is often done and can be done in ways that are astonishingly powerful. The community that Christ makes cannot be achieved and is often easily overlooked, taken for granted, precisely because it's modest in the way that God is modest. So he, he talks about there, there being emotional conversions that are actually just the overpowering of a personality or personalities by some stronger personality. Then he comes to this notion of merely emotional love. And I'll, I'll read this section and, and then we'll go to ethics. There is likewise a merely emotional love of neighbor. Such love is capable of making the most unheard of sacrifices. Often it far surpasses, listen to this sentence, often it far surpasses the genuine love of Christ in fervent devotion and visible results. It speaks the Christian language with overwhelming and stirring eloquence. 
But it is what the apostle is speaking of when he says, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, 1 Corinthians 13, 3. In other words, if I combine the utmost deeds of love with the utmost of devotion, but do not have love, that is the love of Christ, I would be nothing. Self-centered love loves the other for the sake of itself. Spiritual love loves the other for the sake of Christ. That is why self-centered love seeks direct contact with other persons. It loves them, not as free persons, but as those whom it binds to itself. It wants to do everything it can to win and conquer. It puts pressure on the other person, and that's, that's the image that I think we'll return to again and again. It exerts pressure. Its desire is to be irresistible, to dominate. Self-centered love does not think much of truth. It makes the truth relative, since nothing, not even the truth, must come between it and the person loved. Emotional, self-centered love desires other persons, their company. It wants them to return its love, but it does not serve them. On the contrary, it continues to desire even when it seems to be serving. And it goes on. It's, it's astounding, I, I think, in its insight. And, and born of his, his own experiences, obviously, and his pastoral care, both given and received. But I think it arises mostly from a very careful reading of Paul. Right? Paul is the one, that Paul and John and James, um, apostles who learned this from the Lord and have, in, in their writings to their communities, which are for us scripture, come to this theme again and again, and Bonifer recognized it. Because Christ stands between me and, the, and, and another, I must not long for unmediated community with that person. As only Christ was able to speak to me in such a way that I was helped, so others too can only be helped by Christ alone. However, this means that I must release, release others from all my attempts to control, coerce, and dominate them with my love. I must release others from all my attempts to control, coerce, and dominate them with my love. I must release others from all my attempts to control, coerce, and dominate them with my love in their freedom from me. Other persons want to be loved for who they are in their freedom from me. He continues, I'm skipping down a few lines. They should encounter me only as the persons that they already are for Christ. Not, not for me. Not that I've made them, not that I want them to be. Their freedom from me is their freedom in God. Thus, spiritual love will speak to Christ about the other Christian more than to the other Christian about Christ. So intercessory prayer is, is the root, the ground, the foundation for relationship to the other person. Without intercessory prayer, no communication is truly Christian. Cannot be. It, and, that, and that's true, in Bonhoeffer would argue, and I think he's right, that's true of parenting, that's true of marriage, that's true of friendship, that's true of pastoring, that's true of government, that's true of policing. I mean, in any relationship between human beings that isn't grounded in intercessory prayer and an intention to serve will turn into coercion. It will turn into oppression. The assert the the assertion of presence and power on others in order to force them to conform to your will. It knows that the most direct way to others is always through prayer to Christ, and that love of the other is completely tied to the truth found in Christ. 
It is out of this love that John the disciple speaks. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Not walking in my vision of it, but walking in the truth. The kids and I, Julie and I, watched Encanto last night. And this, this, that story, the story of the matriarch who, who has to learn to, to, to release her family to be who they are. Like that's the story that has to be learned again and again. Emotional love lives by uncontrolled and uncontrollable dark desires. Spiritual love lives in the clear light of service ordered by the truth. Self-centered love results in human enslavement, bondage, rigidity. Spiritual love creates the freedom of Christians under the word. And then he gives us this image, which I think is so striking. Emotional love breeds artificial hothouse flowers. Spiritual love creates the fruits that grow healthily under God's open sky. So if you, you need, again, you need to read it. Or, or I, I would think it would be good for you to read it. I can hear Bonifer wagging his finger at me when I say you need to do something. You're in your freedom in Christ, you, you should ask whether or not that's something you should read. But I, I think that that's, that's a really helpful image, right? That there's a kind of community we can make, we can achieve, that is a hothouse. And there are things that can be grown there. But what cannot be grown there are the fruits of the Spirit. And the freedom, the, the fruits of the Spirit can only grow where there is the freedom Christ gives. And that is a freedom from me, a freedom from my power in your life. So with all that said, let's come to ethics. And just a few quick observations before we turn to this, the main section that I want to engage on. Page 52, again, of the Fortress Press edition, he, he makes this observation about, about good intentions. And just to remind you, so the sermon comes earliest, later he is working on life together and publishes that, and later still... He writes ethics, right? So this is even further into his life, nearer the time of his death. Let's see, where should I start? Paragraph 37. The question of good must not be narrowed to investigating the relation of actions to their motives or to their consequences, measuring them by a ready-made ethical standard. An ethic of disposition or intention is just as superficial as an ethic of consequences. For what right do we have to stay with inner motivation as the ultimate phenomenon of ethics, ignoring that good intentions, and he has good in quotes, can grow out of very dark backgrounds in human consciousness and subconsciousness, and that often the worst things happen as a result of good intentions. The worst things happen as a result of good intentions. Now, that's something I suspect that when you hear it, you agree with, but I would encourage you to keep thinking about it until you disagree with it. And then keep thinking about it until you see the truth of it on the other side of that disagreement. He then argues a few pages later, on page 63, that the church is the community that's called to live this life. It's a life that Christ has made possible, and Christians are called to live in that possibility. The church is the place, this is paragraph 49 on page 63, the church is the place where it is proclaimed and taken seriously that God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ, that God so loved the world that God gave his son for it. 
The space of the church is not there in order to fight with the world for a piece of its territory, but precisely to testify to the world that it is still the world, namely the world that is loved and reconciled by God. And just a, a quick note here. This is where I think so much of what Hauerwas did went wrong, as, as, as beneficial as I think his voice has been, and as important as he has been for me personally. I think he he got this part. The church is there to testify to the world that it is still the world. But he forgot that what we're testifying to the world is that it is loved by God and reconciled to God by Jesus Christ. It is not true that the church intends to or must spread its space out over the space of the world. It desires no more space. The church desires no more space than it needs to serve the world with its witness to Jesus Christ. It desires no more space than it needs to serve the world with its witness to Jesus Christ. And so you can see here that Bonhoeffer is not simply saying desire is bad. He's just saying desire has to be ordered to the service of love. And love cannot be coercive. Love must be cruciform. And you don't need me to make the observation to what's happening in American evangelicalism right now. And so the world's reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. The church can only defend its own space by fighting, not for space, but for the salvation of the world. Otherwise, the church becomes a religious society that fights in its own interest and thus has ceased to be the church of God in the world. Mm. So, the first task given to those who belong to the church of God is not to be something for themselves, for example, by creating a religious organization or leading a pious life, but to be witnesses of Jesus Christ to the world. That you can be a religious society, you can religiously achieve a kind of hot house community in which people have what they desire, at least for a while, at least some people have what they desire from community, but it won't be the freedom in which the fruits of the Spirit are possible. It won't be the life together that God intends for us. Now, page 87, in the Ethics as Formation chapter, he is contrasting here genuine and, and inauthentic love, talking specifically about those who despise humanity. Faced by God's becoming human, He's talking about, there's a contempt, I mentioned this last time, there's a contempt for humanity that that seems noble, but it, it's in fact barren. Faced by God's becoming human, this contempt will stand the test no better, better than that of the tyrant. The despiser of humanity despises what God has loved, despises the very form of God become human. There is, however, also a sincerely intended love for humanity that amounts to the same thing as contempt for humanity. And again, this is a passage we looked at last time. It rests on evaluating human beings according to their dormant values. Right? Where ways in which we've been we've been taught to be calculating the health, the reasonableness, the goodness deep beneath the surface. This love for humanity grows mostly in peaceful times. But also in times of great crisis, these values can on occasion shine forth and become the basis for a hard-won and honest love for humanity. But that kind of love always finally fails. One loves a self-made picture of human beings that has little similar similarity to reality, and one ends up despising the real human being whom God has loved and whose being God has taken on. So now you can hear... 
the ways in which that that theme of loving the real and and resisting abstractions works its way through his understanding of the church. The church is the place where we 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 don't deal in ideals. We don't deal in abstractions, and to do that means we we have to be modest, unassuming, open-handed, patient, uh, and patient. I think above all. Page ninety, he talks about the ways in which this means surrendering our idea of success. That. The reason we we are hands-on, hands-y with other people, like Uzza with the Ark, the reason that we are we do violence to others, like Peter cutting off Malchus's ear, is that we we feel driven to make a certain outcome happen. Like and that that's however we define success, it's the end we think must be accomplished. Right? The form of the crucified, though, this is page ninety. The form of the crucified disarms all thinking aimed at success, for it is a denial of judgment. Neither the triumph of the successful nor bitter hatred of the successful by those who fail can finally cope with the world. Jesus is certainly no advocate for the successful in history, but neither does he lead the revolt of the failures against the successful. His concern is neither success nor failure, but willing acceptance of the judgment of God. And that is a kind of gloss on Paul saying, again, Galatians, that what matters is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. Only in judgment is there reconciliation with God among human beings. Reconciliation with God and among human beings. Christ sets the human person judged by God, the successful and the unsuccessful, over against all thinking that revolves around success or failure. God judges people because, out of sheer love, God wants them to be able to stand before God. It is a judgment of grace that God in Christ brings on human beings. And here, the background is Romans 14, I think, especially. Not that all this has value. Over against the successful, God sanctifies pain, lowliness, failure, poverty, loneliness, and despair on the cross of Christ. Not that all this has value in itself. It is made holy by the love of God who takes it all and bears it as judgment. The yes of God to the cross is judgment on the successful, but the unsuccessful must realize that it is not their lack of success, not their place as pariahs as such, that lets them stand before God, but only their acceptance of the judgment of divine love. It is a mystery of God's reign over the world that this very cross, the sign of Christ's failure in the world, can in turn lead to historical success. This cannot be made into a rule though in the suffering of God's church community it repeats itself here and there. Only in the cross of Christ, and that means as judged, does humanity take on its true form. So notice here, again, there's a carefulness. Right? He He's dealing in broad strokes, talking about God's way being a way that does not lead to success, and yet right in the midst of that he does accept and does acknowledge that there are ways in which sometimes following the way of God does bring about success. But what matters, again, in the phrasing from Paul, is neither success nor failure, but faith which works by love. That's that's what's going to count in the end. You, you can see that undergirds his argument in the chapter on ultimate and penultimate things. And so I want to, to end this reflection by turning to that chapter. And 
this distinction he makes between radical radical solutions and compromise solutions, which are equally false to the way of God. Right. So th these are we might say perversions of love, ways in which what he earlier and elsewhere calls emotional love comes to shape the church's mission. It comes to shape the ways in which Christians do their ministry. The relationship, this is page 153, paragraph 144. The relationship between the penultimate and the ultimate in Christian life can be resolved in two extreme ways. One radical and the other is compromise. Noting right away that compromise is also an extreme solution. The radical solution sees only the ultimate, and in it sees only a complete break with the penultimate. Ultimate and penultimate stand in mutually exclusive opposition. Christ is the destroyer and enemy of everything penultimate, and everything penultimate is the enemy of Christ in, in this radical construal. And just, just to be clear, the ultimate is the thing that matters most, most, which is justification by grace through faith alone. Penultimate is, is everything else, everything that comes before and after what is ultimate, that, that leads up to it and leads from it you'll see the ways in which he works out those categories. But he insists that the human life is a life of the ultimate and penultimate held together. And this is not entirely unlike C.S. Lewis's observation in The Four Loves, that human beings are needy. Right? You remember Lewis makes this distinction between gift love and need love. And then right away insists, he says, you know, God's love is gift love and human love is needy. And then he right, right away insists that Christians can learn to share in gift love, but that there will always be need. Like to be human is to be needy. The question is just, do we allow the gift love to rework the need love in us? So something very similar to that, I think, is, is what Bonhoeffer is doing here. Not identical, but similar enough that you can they, they can resonate with each other. So in Radical Solutions... Christ is the destroyer and en enemy of everything penultimate, and everything penultimate is the enemy of Christ. Christ is the sign that the world is ripe to be consigned to the fire. For, for those who think in radical terms, Jesus is the destroyer of the world. Here there are no distinctions. All must come to judgment. In the judgment there is only one division, to be for or against Christ. Whoever is not with me is against me, which is, of course, a line from Christ. Everything penultimate in human behavior is sin and denial. Faced with the coming in, there is for Christians only the ultimate word and ultimate behavior. What will happen to the world as a result is no longer important. The Christian has no responsibility for that. The world must burn in any case. Let the whole order of the world break down under the word of Christ. Here it is a matter of all or nothing. The ultimate word of God, which is a word of grace, becomes here the icy hardness of the law that crushes and despises all resistance. So I, I think... Well, let me let me read what he says about compromise, and then I'll talk about how I think it relates to the churches that I've known, the communities I've lived in. The other solution is compromise. Here, the ultimate word is divorced in principle from all that is penultimate. The penultimate retains its inherent rights, but it is not threatened or endangered by the ultimate. The world still stands. The end has not yet come. Penultimate things must still be done in responsibility for this world that God created. We must still reckon with human beings as they are. And he here, as, as he does in other places, references Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor. The ultimate stays completely beyond daily life, and in the end serves only 
as the eternal justification of all that exists, and a, as a metaphysical cleansing of the indictment that burdens all existence. The free word of grace becomes a law of grace, reigning over all that is penultimate, justifying and preserving it. Both solutions are extreme in the same respect, and likewise both contain truth and falsehood, truths and falsehoods. They are extreme because they make the penultimate and the ultimate mutually exclusive, sometimes by destroying the penultimate through the ultimate, other times by banishing the ultimate from the domain of the penultimate. In the one case, the ultimate cannot come to terms with the penultimate. In the other, the penultimate cannot come to terms with the ultimate. Both wrongly absolutize ideas that are necessary and right in themselves. Wrongly absolutize ideas that are right and necessary in themselves. The radical solution approaches things from the end of all things, from God and the from God the Judge and Redeemer. The compromise solution approaches things from the Creator and Preserver. One absolutizes the end; the other absolutizes what exists. Thus, creation and redemption, time and eternity, fall into an insoluble conflict. The very unity of God is itself dissolved, and faith in God is shattered. You can see on the next page, and I'll, I'll move back and forth for just a moment, but he gives a kind of summing up in paragraph 148 in, in showing the differences in these extreme solutions that are ultimately one in their rejection of the way of Jesus. Radicalism hates time. Compromise hates eternity. Radicalism hates patience. Compromise hates decision. Radicalism hates wisdom. Compromise hates simplicity. Radicalism hates measure. Compromise hates the immeasurable. Radicalism hates the real. Compromise hates the word. I, I think what, I, what I've observed, though, even though I think this, again, is, is really helpful, and I, I think it will prove helpful as you think with it, think with Bonifer about your own context and, and your own life, I, I think that most of our communities, at least American evangelical communities, practice both both forms, both of these extremes, on different fronts at different times, so that there's a kind of incoherency to the way to our our religion, our spirituality, our quote unquote worldview. We are radicals on some fronts at some times, and compromisers on other fronts at other times, and it seems. And maybe this, maybe this is too cynical, but it seems to me that that is enti almost entirely a, a matter of what will bring about the most immediate result, right? What is most effective? If radicalism will, will produce results, we're radicals. If Compromise produces results, and results means numbers of people and amounts of money, mostly. Not, not exclusively, but mostly. So he, he then makes the further observation on page 157 that not only does, do these extremes kind of divorce God from the world and God from God and brother from sister and so on, it also breaks apart the life of Christ. It breaks apart the mission of Christ, right? So the incarnation is separated from the crucifixion, from the resurrection. In Jesus Christ, this is paragraph 149, in Jesus Christ we believe in the God who became human, was crucified, and is risen. In the becoming human we recognize God's love toward God's creation. 
in the crucifixion, God's judgment on all flesh, and in the resurrection, God's purpose for a new world. Nothing could be more perverse than to tear these three apart, because the whole is contained in each of them. Just as it, as it is improper to pit against one another a theology of the Incarnation, a theology of the cross, or a theology of the resurrection, by falsely absolutizing one of them, such a procedure is false as well as any consideration of Christian life. A Christian ethic built only on the Incarnation would lead easily to the compromise solution. An ethic built only on the crucifixion or only on the resurrection of Jesus Christ would fall into radicalism and enthusiasm. The conflict is resolved only in their unity. To go back a page, paragraph 146, which is on, starts on page 154, to advocates of the radical solution, it must be said that Christ is not radical in their sense. To followers of the compromise solution, it must be said, likewise, that Christ does not make compromises. Accordingly, Christian life is a matter neither of radicalism nor of compromise. The fight over which of the two views is more serious is pointless when confronted with Jesus Christ, in whom alone there is real seriousness, for this exposes how unserious both solutions are. And by the way, this is not a third way. He's not arguing here for some middle ground or some obvious mediating alternative, golden mean. He's saying that the way of Jesus makes nonsense of our way of processing success and failure, our way of processing, therefore, radical and compromised solutions. Neither the idea of a pure Christianity as such nor the idea of the human being as such is serious, but only God's reality and human reality as they have become one in Jesus Christ. What is serious is not some kind of Christianity, but Jesus Christ himself. In Jesus Christ, God's reality and human reality take the place of radicalism and compromise. There is no Christianity as such, no generalization, no abstraction. If there were, it would destroy the world. There is no human being as such. If there were, God would be excluded. Both are ideas. There is only the God-man Jesus Christ who is real, through whom the world will be preserved until it is ripe for its end. This, I think, is what we're up against, right? This is what we're up against. Page 158. In, in our churches, we are confronting a mishmash of radicalism and compromise on every front by people who are, who've been formed in hothouses and, and therefore have not known the freedom that's meant for them. And, and, and they have been formed to make use of radicalism and compromise to form the life they want for themselves and to form others into that, into that image. The unity, this is page 158, the unity and differentiation of incarnation, cross, and resurrection should be clear. Christian life is life with Jesus Christ who became human, was crucified, and is risen, and whose word as a whole encounters us in the message of the justification of the sinner by grace. Christian life means being human in the power of Christ becoming human, being judged and pardoned in the power of a cross, living a new life in the power of the resurrection. No one of these is without the others. Once that's in, in place, once we recognize that we are sharing in Christ's birth, we're sharing in Christ's death, and we're sharing in Christ's resurrection all at once. Only insofar as we live that life, right, live true to that way of life, true to Jesus, can we break free of the pressures to 
fit the ideals of Christian community that others have for us, or that perhaps we have for others. And I've got to wrap this up because I'm taking too long. I, I think, I think what I'll do to end is is share Jeffrey Hill's poem "Christmas Trees," which is about Bonifer. So let me let me read that and and wrap up with it. So Jeffrey Hill, great English poet, died um, a few years ago now. This is his poem "Christmas Trees," which is about Diedrich Bonifer and his witness. Bonifer in his skylit cell, bleached by the flare's candescent fall, pacing out his own citadel, restores the broken themes of praise, encourages our borrowed days by logic of his sacrifice. Against wild reasons of the state, his words are quiet, but not too quiet. We hear too late, or not too late. Let me read it one more time. Bonifer in his skylit cell, bleached by the flare's candescent fall, pacing out his own citadel, restores the broken themes of praise, encourages our borrowed days by logic of his sacrifice. Against wild reasons of the state, his words are quiet, but not too quiet. We hear too late, or not too late. And this, this poem is entitled Christmas Trees. And I'm not quite sure why, but it just so happened that on the same day I was preparing all of this, this was for the last talk, and reading over Jeffrey Hill's poem, my friend Bill, Father Bill Dandriano, told me about his daughter Sophia giving him a picture of the three crosses. And this picture that she drew for him, she's five, Sophia, she she folded it and tucked it in the cross on the stage and, and gave it to him on Sunday. And when he unfolded it, he saw that there was a cross and, and Jesus cross. And above the crosses are hearts and above the hearts look like Christmas lights, right? So it's a kind of string of lights and, and under the lights, three hearts above each cross, one above each cross. In the center is Christ's cross, which remains a cross. But the other two crosses have become Christmas trees. And I think that image and this poem capture so much about what Bonhoeffer is doing. And Jeffrey Hill has come jammed into these nine lines. So much of Bonhoeffer's theology, right? That that he, Bonhoeffer himself is imprisoned, right? We go back to the very first talk in this series. Advent is like life in a prison cell. It's not unlike it entirely. He's in his skylit cell, bleached by the the light of bomb flares, but he's pacing out a citadel. Right? He's, he's living intercessory prayer. And in that, he's restoring the broken themes of praise and encouraging us to live these, what, what he calls here, borrowed days, this sense of, of our createdness, encouraging us back into celebration of God, delight in God, and acceptance of our finitude, our limitedness, uh, the fact that all we have is given to us, and making a sacrifice. He, he, he does this by a kind of sacrifice, but it's not the sacrifice of emotional love. It's not the sacrifice of self-centered love. And we know that because it's his words are quiet, but not too quiet. His words are quiet, but not too quiet. And it's that tact, and this, this is becoming 
has over the last few years become more and more and more and more of a theme for me as crucial, pun intended, to the Christian life. Tactfulness. Force, but not too much force. To, to be present, but not overwhelmingly present. And it's that, to come back to life together, that I think Bonifer understands so astonishingly well that you, you cannot assert your presence on another in such a way that they are put down, in, in, in such a way that they are, are controlled or, or held under. In the, in the chapter on, on service in Life Together, page 95, In their freedom from me, God made other people in God's own image. I can never know in advance how God's image should appear in others. That image always takes on a completely new and unique form whose origin is found solely in God's free and sovereign act of creation. To me, that form may seem strange, even ungodly, but God creates every person in the image of God's Son, the crucified, and this image, likewise, certainly looks strange and ungodly to me before I grasped it. And I think that's what Sophia's picture shows, right? That Christmas... Advent and Christmas are seasons of accepting the cross so that others around us can be Christmas trees. So that the sign of love that is upon all of us, the light of God that is upon all of us, can come to bear on us in such a way that death is at work in us, but life is in others. We're in our skylit cell, pacing out the citadel, speaking words that are quiet but not too quiet. That, I think, is Bonhoeffer's wisdom. God's wisdom that Bonifer shared with us.